Listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the February 26th reading of the Summit Daily. My name is Lainey Bueller. Beginning with local news, if we have to go to a lawsuit, we're not afraid. Officials in Summit County report improvements with the U.S. Postal Service, but say more work needs to be done by Ryan Spencer. For years, residents of Colorado's mountain towns have reported continued issues with their local U.S. Postal Service offices. Now, U.S. Senators Michael Bennett and John Hickenlooper have invited Postmaster General Louis DeJoy to visit the state to witness the problems firsthand. In a letter sent Thursday to DeJoy, the CEO of the U.S. Postal Service, the Senators say their offices have seen a sharp rise in complaints from Coloradans over the past two years and ask him to tour a local facility. Colorado and the country rely on the U.S. Postal Service's universal service mandate to receive essential documents and service, the senators wrote. Poor and inconsistent U.S. Postal Service not only falls short of community expectations, it violates their trust in the U.S. Postal Service. The letter notes that residents of mountain towns rely on the Postal Service to send and receive election ballots, Social Security checks, passports, prescription medicines, and other essential time-sensitive mail. Over the past few months in Summit County, residents have reported weeks-long delays in receiving mail, including bills and important documents difficulty accessing mail order prescriptions, and long waits to pick up packages. For more than a month, Dillon Post Office restricted its hours for post office box access, usually available 24-7 to 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. after vandalism damaged the infrastructure there. And when U.S. Representative Joe Neguse expressed deep concern over Postal Service mismanagement in a letter to U.S. Postal Service leaders late last month, he specifically cited issues at the Dillon and Silverthorne Post Offices. The letter from Bennett and Hickenlooper comes as several Colorado mountain towns have started to publicly discuss the potential of bringing a lawsuit against the U.S. Postal Service, but also as local leaders have reported that the agency has made some progress in recent weeks. In the statement, James Broxrud, a spokesperson for the Postal Service, said the federal agency is in receipt of the letter from the senators. But Buxrud said he does not know whether DeJoy or Joshua Colon, the Postal Service's executive vice president, who the letter is also addressed to, will accept the invitation. 
We appreciate their concern for the Postal Service and our customers, Boxrood said in the statement. Stabilizing and improving service throughout the Colorado Mountain communities is an organizational priority for the Post Service. The Postal Service continues to face challenges related to staffing and housing in resort communities as and is in regular communications with all of Colorado's Senate and congressional staff, according to the statement. Bennett? Bennett and Hickenlooper wrote in their letter that local residents have identified several areas where the Postal Service could improve, including resolving staffing shortages, partnering with towns to identify affordable housing for Postal Service employees, and revamping infrastructure, particularly for packages. Moreover, the senators said the Postal Service should immediately reinstate the quarterly calls with Colorado's congressional delegation that it had started last year. In Summit County, the Postal Service has taken some steps to begin addressing those issues, according to Interim Summit County Manager Philip Gonchak. In response to an offer noting workforce housing available through the county, five Postal Service employees have applied, Gonchak said. When I got here in November, it was in dire straits for the Postal Service to provide mail to its customers and residents here, he said. I'm hoping now this will stop the hemorrhaging. Gonchek said the county's main goal is to be a partner for the Postal Service so residents can start receiving better service. We want to make it better for our residents, he said, not just talk about the deficiencies. Meanwhile, Dillon Town Manager Nathan Johnson said the post office in town has a couple new staff members which should help with the service issues that residents have been experiencing there. Still, though, there's much work to be done to get the Dillon Post Office to where it needs to be, Johnson said, noting the town has asked the Postal Service to look at potential redevelopment of that property with the possibility of including workforce housing for employees on site. While crediting local Postal Service workers for their hard work, he said he believes there needs to be a fix at the federal level. There's a lot of things that have to happen. It's trying to correct a ship, Johnson said. It's going to take weeks, maybe even months, to get to 100% where it needs to be. In Silverthorne, too, the Postal Service has had success hiring new employees, according to town manager Ryan Highland. Residents have reported finally receiving Christmas cards sent from the East Coast eight weeks ago, Highland said. Maybe some of the log jam is breaking up, he said. But the level of service in Silverthorne and Summit County is still not where it needs to be, Highland said. And local leaders continue to be frustrated by a lack of regular updates from the Postal Service. Maybe it's a little bit of relief from that intense level of crisis, 
but is obviously nowhere near the level of service we expect and deserve, Highland said. I think a lot of folks can't fathom the situation that we're in because it's so different from the service levels you see in most of the rest of the county. Despite some recent improvements, both Highland and Gonshak said they've been involved in ongoing conversations among Colorado Mountain Towns about a potential lawsuit against the Postal Service, though they are hopeful that other solutions will be found, so it won't come to that. But if we have to go to a lawsuit, we're not afraid, Gonshak said. Former Beaver Creek Resort manager details pay discrimination at Vail Resorts to State Senate Committee by John LeConte of the Vail Daily. Michelle Seamer, a former operations manager at Beaver Creek Resort, testified Tuesday before the Colorado Senate's Business, Labor, and Technology Committee in Denver, saying she and other women faced gender-based pay discrimination while working for Vail Resorts. Seamer worked for Vail Resorts from September 2000 to June 2022, working her way up to the operations manager position at Beaver Creek Resort. In a discrimination charge filed with the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, Seamer said while working for Beaver Creek, she discovered that at least one of the male employees who reported to her earned more than her despite having less tenure, a lower title and position, less experience, fewer certifications, and fewer responsibilities. Seamer's charge also says she reported the disparate pay to both the regional director and director at Vail Resorts, who told her there was nothing they could do to re remedy the disparity. Seamer's testimony on Tuesday was in an effort to support Senate Bill 23105, currently working its way through the legislature, which would expand on Colorado's Equal Pay for Equal Work Act of 2019. The 2019 bill allows a person aggrieved by a discrimination violation to obtain relief for back pay going back three years. And Senate Bill 23-105 would increase that to six years, something Seamer said would benefit her and others. Standing up to a multi-million dollar corporation with endless resources can seem an impossible task. Making sure the Department of Labor and Employment has the authority and resources to investigate and resolve cases like mine would help women like me who are treated and paid unfairly come forward and get at least some of the back pay we deserve, Seamer said on Tuesday. Increasing the back pay period up to six years would make a huge difference for my family. 
One of the bill's primary sponsors, Senator Jesse Danielson, a Democrat, said the Equal Pay for Equal Work Act of 2019 made it no longer illegal to discriminate against a woman for being a woman, for performing the same exact work as men, and established a process for women to pursue a claim in court. But Danielson said, unless the legislature th strengthens the Equal Pay for Equal Work Act, women will be underpaid when compared to men for the exact same work. Seamer, in her Tuesday testimony, said that has been the case with her at Vail Resorts in the years following the passage of the Equal Pay for Equal Work Act of 2019. My position should have been fixed years ago, she said. Vail Resorts uses a grade structure to determine salaries. Seamer on Tuesday said men with similar responsibilities were graded as senior managers, while the highest grade she was able to reach was manager. I kept taking more responsibility in the hopes that I would be promoted and paid more. Instead, I was told that my pay would not increase because I was at the highest end of the range for my grade, Seamer said. Requests for my grade to be adjusted to reflect the full scope of my responsibilities and in alignment with men in similar roles were ignored by my supervisor and human resources. Even men I supervised were paid more than me. I stayed as long as I did because I wanted to provide for my family. I ultimately left last year because it was clear that they were not going to pay me fairly. Many other women have also been underpaid by my former employer and are afraid of rocking the boat. Seymour returned to the rocking the boat expression often in her speech, using it as a metaphor for her situation. Women and children don't rock the boat because we're afraid our kids will fall out, she said. As a girl and the child of immigrants, I was taught to work hard and not rock the boat. As a woman who finally rocked the boat and found the courage to jump in, I'm swimming to shore and asking you to send a lifeboat back in the form of supporting Senate Bill 23-105. The Colorado Senate's Business, Labor, and Technology Committee is expected to hear more testimony on Senate Bill 23-105 in the coming weeks. The Vail Daily reached out to Vail Resorts for comment on Seamer's testimony and didn't receive a response. A Mexican restaurant is replacing Bobert's former Shooter's Grill in Rifle and acquires a liquor license by Ray Urku from the Post Independent. Rifle, cerveza, Margaritas and enchiladas rancheras are coming to a downtown rifle spot that formerly dished out burgers and fries by pistol-packing servers. Tapatillos of Newcastle is currently in the process of opening a new location inside the vacant downtown rifle storefront that used to house Shooter's Grill.
The former Shooters was owned by Silt Republican Representative Lauren Boebert of Colorado's 3rd Congressional District. Rifle City Council on February 15th unanimously approved a hotel and liquor license for Tapatillos. Floor plans submitted with the liquor license application show the new restaurant creating a large indoor seating area, a patio section out front, and full seating bar. It's a family restaurant, Tapatillo owner Esmeralda Cornejo told city council members after the approval. The former Shooters, which never served alcohol, opened in May of 2013 and closed in July of 2022 when building owner Milken Enterprises LLC, which also owns cannabis dispensary Rifle Remedies, opted not to renew Bobert's lease. Shooter's Grill itself came into national prominence when Bobert encouraged her staff to openly holster firearms while serving customers. Bobert, winning her first congressional term in 2020 and her second in 2022, is also known nationwide as an ultra-conservative and a staunch proponent of building a border wall with Mexico. Now, Tapatillo's opening its first location in Newcastle in September 2020 prepares to serve Mexican-style meals in the heart of Rifle. Rifle City Clerk Misty Williams said, per liquor license requirements, regular meals will be served between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. with lighter snacks offered anytime after 8 p.m. The liquor license application is in concurrent review with the state. Many neighboring business owners indicated support for Tapatillo's obtaining the liquor license. City documents show. There's no concern or petitions, Williams said. Tapatillo's lease with Milken Enterprises ends August 31st, 2027. The city does not yet know when exactly the new Mexican restaurant is slated to open. Milken Enterprises owner Dan Meskin, Tapatillo's or Bobert did not respond to requests for comment for the story. Colorado is expected to generate $815,000 in hotel taxes, up 16.7% since pre-pandemic, by Joe Muller. State and local tax revenue generated by Colorado hotels will increase 16.7% in 2023 compared to 2019 collections, according to estimates by the American Hotel and Lodging Association. Colorado's projected state and local tax revenue will be $815 million this year, an increase of $116 million since the pandemic affected travel in 2020. In 2019, tax revenue was $698 million. 
when there are more taxes being generated, it means the industry is doing well, and that's a good thing. Amy Mayhew, President and CEO of the Colorado Hotel and Lodging Association, said in an interview with the Center Square, we don't have a position on anything that should be done or if tax rates should go down. I don't think municipalities would be in favor of that, and I don't know if that's something our members would advocate for. The only area with a decline in tax revenue will be Washington, D.C., with a 1.1% decrease, according to the AHLA. Montana will have the largest increase with a projected 33% gain compared to 2019, increasing from $108 million to $145 million. The dramatic decline in travel demand in 2020 had a chilling effect on the hotel industry, leading to a loss of $13.2 billion in annual state and local tax revenue, the AHLA report stated. But as hotels progress toward recovery, the communities where they operate are being lifted as well. In 2023, U.S. hotels are expected to generate $46.7 billion in state and local taxes and projected state and local tax revenue for 2023 will surpass pre-pandemic levels in all U.S. states. Staffing continues to be a problem for the industry as hotels are striving to return to pre-pandemic levels. Hotels are making significant strides toward recovery, supporting millions of good-paying jobs and generating billions in state and local tax revenue in communities across the nation. AHLA President and CEO Chip Rogers said in a statement announcing the research, to continue growing, we need to hire more people. Fortunately, there's never been a better time to be a hotel employee with wages, benefits, flexibility, and upward mobility better than ever before. The 2023 nationwide projected staffing level at 2.1 million is 11.1% lower than in 2019, which was 2.4 million, according to the report. The association reported more than 100,000 jobs are currently open throughout the nation's hotels as of December 2022, the average hourly wage was $23. In Colorado, the 2023 projected hotel staffing level, 46,879, will be approximately 11% below 2019 levels, which was at 52,875. Washington, D.C. is projected to have the largest staffing decline at 19.2%. Turning to crime and public safety, criminal charges against preschool teachers, closure of child care center, tore a Colorado town apart. 
by Jennifer Brown. Poncha Springs. The midday message told parents to pick up their toddlers immediately. The child care center was abruptly closing without explanation. When parents pulled into the parking lot of the schoolhouse in Poncha Springs on January 24th, they panicked at the sight of multiple law enforcement cars and six armed deputies in the foyer of the daycare. Some feared it was a shooting. When they realized their children were safe, they wondered if they had been molested. Neither the sheriff's deputies or Chafee County Child Welfare Authorities, who joined them in the raid of the child care center, were providing information. Parents would find out two days later, after a group debriefing by the sheriff's office, that a five-year-old boy had been caught trying to pull down his classmates' paint pants, and the kids had said he touched their butts. Two daycare directors, who spent a few days trying to figure out how to handle the situation and then reported the incident, were charged with crimes. Failure to report child abuse in the time allowed under the law and placing a child in a situation that posed a threat of injury. It's been a month since the schoolhouse was shut down and the drama reverberates beyond the loss of 24 child care spots in a child care desert. And now turning to the environment, Colorado Wolf Reintroduction Plan evolves as challenges threaten early 2024 deadline to have predators roaming the western slope. By Jason Blevins, Western Slope. Colorado Parks and Wildlife is navigating a minefield as the agency works to move wolves into northwestern Colorado by next winter. As the final pieces of a complicated puzzle fall into place and Colorado Parks and Wildlife's commissioners make final adjustments to the voter-mandated plan to reintroduce gray wolves to western Colorado by the end of 2023, the challenges are mounting. Litigation is simmering that could delay reintroduction for years. Calls are increasing for federal land managers to launch lengthy studies of how wolves might impact public lands. And pressure is growing from both wildlife advocates and ranchers who don't like specifics of the draft reintroduction plan, which is supposed to be finalized in May with a goal of relocating 10 to 15 wolves west of the Continental Divide by next winter. Ranchers think they should be reimbursed more for livestock that are harassed or killed by wolves. Wildlife advocates don't want to allow recreational hunting of wolves and want to eliminate a final phase of the draft plan that allows ranchers to kill wolves that are threatening horses, dogs, cattle, and sheep. The lethal management of wolves was the hottest topic Wednesday 
at the Adams County Fairgrounds, where the last of five public wolf meetings was held. Killing wolves was also the most contentious issue at Colorado Parks and Wildlife's previous public meetings on the wolf plan in Colorado Springs, Gunnison, Rifle, and online, where hundreds of residents voiced their concerns and opinions. And now turning to education. Criminal charges against preschool teachers, the closure of the child care center tore a Colorado town apart. Now from housing, what can Summit County buyers expect from the 2023 housing market? It's a mixed bag, industry experts say. By Robert Tan, T-A-N-N. Decreased home prices, more housing inventory, rising interest rates, short-term rental regulations. There are a plethora of factors currently at play in the housing market, which Summit County real estate experts say could benefit both buyers and sellers this year. While brokers don't expect a paradigm shift in the market compared to past years, they said a cooling down trend may have already begun after the COVID boom that saw prices skyrocket. We've gone through this transition over the past year to a more stable market where you aren't seeing the median sales price skyrocket like it did over the past few years, said Deshaun Lutz, associate broker for real estate of the summit and president for Summit Association of Realtors. Home sales in the county were down 37% in 2022 compared to 2021, according to a report from Land Title, even as prices reached new heights. In 2022, the average home sale, which includes both single and multifamily homes, such as condos, was $1.3 million, according to land title data. The average price for a single family home exceeded $2 million, the highest value on record. According to a recent report by Dana Cottrell, a Summit County broker and spokesperson for the Colorado Association of Realtors, the price of a single family home decreased in January by about 10% compared to the 2022 average to a value of $1.85 million. The report also found there were 20 single-family homes sold in the county last month, down from 35 sales in December of 2022. For multifamily homes, there were nine sales, down from 35. The availability of housing also rose at the end of last year, according to data from the association, which reported 109 single-family homes on the market in December 2022, up from 61 in December of 2021. Inventory for townhomes and condos increased from 233 to 263. 
For Lutz, it represents a shift toward more buying power, even as sellers remain well-positioned. We're in a healthier market for consumers, Lutz said. They're able to negotiate on terms of the contract. The reason comes down to a basic scenario of supply and demand, the latter of which has dwarfed availability for years. While housing supply is still far from meeting the need, Lutz said the increase in availability and slowdown of sales gives buyers more time and options. You don't have to be as aggressive as you did previously, Lutz said, though homes can still sell on the market within a couple of days. It's still a good time for sellers to sell, Lutz said, meaning the competition for a seller is still somewhat down. Leah Canfield, a broker associate for Coldwell Banker Mountain Properties, said while buyers may have more opportunities this year than they did in years past, both national and local factors still pose a challenge for those trying to break into the housing market. Interest rates, which have been continuously increased by the U.S. Federal Reserve in a bid to tamp down consumer spending and slow inflation, rose from a range of 0.25% and 0.50% at the start of 2022 to 4.5% and 4.75% as of February. And that means a steep increase on mortgage payments, which, coupled with the county's recently passed short-term rental regulations, could restrict movement in the housing market, Canfield said. For homeowners using their property as a short-term rental, many have been locked into an interest rate closer to zero if they purchased those homes before inflation began to climb. As the county seeks to reduce the amount of short-term rental properties over the coming years with a new cap on licenses, Canfield said some of those homeowners may be reluctant to sell their property. There are certain sellers saying, I have to hold on to my home, Canfield said. And even as this year began with a drop in single-family prices, Canfield doesn't expect that to be the new normal. Prices haven't really changed as much as people thought they might. The new normal is going to be less sales volume. Still, Canfield said there are more reasons to be optimistic as a potential homeowner. More of her clients are coming to her ready to close on a deal, she said, signaling more confidence in the housing market from buyers. But how long that will last, Canfield said, is hard to say. If somebody wants to buy a home here, they should be looking right now. Some Summit County infrastructure projects are nearing the finish line, while others are slow going by Robert Tan. From a new library to a sprawling electric vehicle storage and charging complex, major infrastructure projects are moving forward in Summit County, albeit at different paces. 
County officials discussed progress and setbacks on a slew of initiatives during a February 21 Summit Board of County Commissioners meeting. With budgets for projects ranging from a few hundred thousand to tens of millions of dollars, most are likely to see completion this year, though some are likely to take longer. For both a new 17,000 square foot Summit County search and rescue facility budgeted at $7.9 million and a renovation of the Silverthorne-based North Branch Library budgeted at $3.5 million, the county is not where we hope to be, but we are where we need to be, said Dale Stein, Capital Projects Manager. Some challenges that have slowed the project's construction include unanticipated fees, price increases for some materials, and current winter conditions. The library is expected to be completed in September, while the rescue facility likely won't be finished until February of next year, Stein said. Commissioner Josh Blanchard applauded the fundraising efforts of the search and rescue team, which raised over $1.5 million for the new facility. It certainly shows the community's support for the project, Blanchard said. Current fundraising for the library was projected to be $1 million but currently suits at just over $650,000, though Commissioner Elizabeth Lawrence said the county has agreed to move forward with that project, even if the full $1 million is not raised. Other projects include a remodeling of the county's emergency operations center, budgeted at $2.1 million, a new 9,600-square-foot materials recovery facility, budgeted at $4 million, noise mitigation for the Summit County shooting range, budgeted at $1.1 million, and a daycare facility at the Village at Wintergreen Apartments, budgeted at $4.25 million. The latter, the latter, however, is currently on hold as the county awaits the results of a March 28th vote by Keystone residents and property owners that will determine if the area will become a self-governed town or remain part of unincorporated Summit County. But regardless of the election's outcome, commissioners expressed uncertainty about that site's future. At 5,000 square feet, county officials said the Wintergreen area may not be the most suitable location for the center. I think that we just have real concern about how small this site is and if it's really what we want to build, Lawrence said, adding that commissioners have discussed the possibility of building a larger center at an undeveloped site known as Lake Hill that sits outside the town of Frisco where the county has contemplated building workforce housing. Commissioner Commissioner Tamara Pogue said the Wintergreen site lends itself 
to infill development for housing more than it does a childcare site. Another childcare facility in Silverthorne is continuing to move forward with county officials hopeful it will open this fall. At about 8,800 square feet, the center is expected to support around 70 children a day. Though it's nearing the finish line, commissioners acknowledge the project has taken longer than they'd hoped to get off the ground, and more still may need to happen even after the center opens. There were a number of delays, Lawrence said, and that has continued to happen from here on out. By far the county's most costly project, a new complex to house the county's electric vehicle fleet, electric charging stations, and some form of workforce housing, does not have an end date, according to officials, and remains in an conceptual stage. At $42 million, the county is mostly paying for the project with a $34.7 million from the Colorado Department of Transportation provided by the Biden administration's more than $1.6 billion low or no emission vehicle program with officials eyeing preliminary work and excavation to begin in September in an unincorporated area outside of Frisco. County staff said they plan to increase the amount of housing the project can support to the maximum extent possible and said that that will likely come more into focus once an architecture firm is hired. The Summit County Library honors volunteers, including some tail-wagging friends by Robert Tan. The Summit County Library Department recently honored several volunteers, including a host of reading dogs and even a cat according to a county government press release. The recognition is part of the library's ongoing annual Volunteer of the Year Award and Van Woodford Award, which acknowledge the hard work of the library volunteers who dedicate their time and energy to making the county's libraries a welcoming and enriching environment for both residents and visitors of February 20th press release states. For Volunteer of the Year, the library has awarded a slate of dog and cat owners who represent a team of reading dogs made up of registered therapy animals. Those include Holly Holden and Oliver and Harry, the first reading cat, Linda Hrikaj and Jiggs, Leanne Lumsden and Owen, Brad Perry and Jack and Ruby, Jan Shipman and Trooper, Sandy Smith and Manny, Patty Smith and Ingrid, Pat Spitzmiller and Josie, Beverly Young and Cody. 
the Van Woodford Award, named after the titular library manager of 37 years, was given to Dale Stein, a county capital projects manager who began working with the South Branch Library in the town of Breckenridge in 2013, the press release states. He adeptly managed the challenges of renovating the historic schoolhouse built in 1909, complete with a 160-seat theater, the press press release stated. By March of 2022, Stein had helped two beautiful Summit County libraries reopen and had a third, the North Branch Library, started on its renovation. His attention to detail and care for each project he works on is truly admirable. Colorado could soon start using a new avalanche forecasting method following the Joint Budget Committee recommendation by John LeConte. The Colorado General Assembly's Joint Budget Committee on Tuesday voted in favor of sponsoring a $1 million funding effort to help the Colorado Avalanche Information Center transition from a fixed zone forecasting method to a flexible zone method. The fixed zone method issues avalanche forecasts for large predetermined regions throughout the state while a flexible zone method divides those regions into sub-regions based on day-to-day -day avalanche conditions on the ground. Joint Budget Committee staff member Mitch Burmeister described the fixed zone method as being more rigidly delineated and less consistent than a flexible zone method. There are really large swaths of territory in the individual zones, Burmeister said Tuesday. What is potentially dangerous in one part of the zone might be completely a non-issue in another part. But if you're a consumer of this zone, you go online and you look at it and you say, this zone is dangerous, I better not go out. But you might actually be okay going out or vice versa. The Colorado Avalanche Information Center is set to begin receiving $1 million in annual funding from the new Keep Colorado Wild State Parks Pass. But those revenues aren't expected to reach the Avalanche Center's coffers until fiscal year 2024-25. In the meantime, the Joint Budget Committee has recommended the Colorado House and Senate approve legislation supporting a one-time appropriation of $1,075,419 cash funds from the state severance tax operational fund into the Colorado Avalanche Information Center Fund for the purchase of special equipment and remote motoring systems. The recommendation to sponsor the legislation gives the Joint Budget Committee staff permission to begin working with legislators to begin drafting legislation in support of the $1,075,419 appropriation.
The recommendation comes out of a desire to keep the two full-time positions that have already been hired by the Colorado Avalanche Information Center without having to pause the work that the center has started. The center has begun a transition to a new staffing model, putting all of the forecasting and public communication duties in the hands of a permanent staff, while the temporary staff is only responsible for data collection, Burmeister said. Avalanche forecasters in Canada have switched to a flexible zone method of avalanche forecasting last year. Avalanche Canada reports that the new system has allowed forecasters to more accurately reflect backcountry conditions as the forecast regions are now determined by the avalanche conditions. While we're covering the same area we always have, the forecast regions are now dynamic with boundaries that change in response to conditions, Avalanche Canada says. Avalanche forecasters in Canada now determine the regional boundaries on a daily basis, no longer using predetermined forecast regions or region names. Colorado to see six more days of snow. But which areas will get the most powder? Meteorologists take their best guess. This is a staff report. While Summit County won't be missed by the upcoming string of storms that could drop powder across Colorado for six days straight, the southern mountains are favored this time around. Silverton Mountain Ski Area, Purgatory Resort, Telluride Ski Resort, Aspen Snowmass Ski Resort, and Steamboat Ski Resort have the highest chances for deep powder in the next week, according to stats compiled by OpenSnow.com. The first storm of the week will wrap up Monday morning but another system is moving in on its heels, meteorologists say. According to the National Weather Service of Boulder, Denver reports, there's a chance of snow each day in Summit County until Friday. But snow totals are expected to stay light, even though the storm is expected to drop double-digit snow totals in the southern and northern mountains. The strongest of the storms is expected to hit Wednesday and last into Thursday, according to a hazardous weather outlook by the National Weather Service. But OpenSnow.com founder and meteorologist 
Joel Gratt says he has low confidence in snow totals for areas like Summit County since the storm could take on a more southern route. Summit Siddhartha Ula prepared to face off against his snowboarding idols at first winter dew tour. 16-year-old half-pipe rider narrowly missed qualifying for the 2022 Olympics for Great Britain and was recently accepted into Stanford by Cody Jones. The 2023 Winter Dew Tour will be a full-circle moment for one of Summit County's young, burgeoning riders, Siddhartha Sid Ula, 16, will be making his debut in the competition in a lineup of athletes that inspired him and shaped him into the half-pipe rider he is today. Danny Davis and Ayumu Hirano were two of the riders that inspired me to get into the sport and start competing, Ula said. Ola met both riders when he was quite young, but on Sunday afternoon, Ola will get the opportunity to compete against both of his idols during the snowboard super pipe final. I'm really excited, Ola said, of the opportunity to compete against Davis and Hirano. I've never competed against Danny Davis before. To be able to be in the same competition and competing with him, I feel like is an amazing moment for me. Beyond being a young rider with ties to Great Britain, Ula is also a Copper Mountain Resort-sponsored athlete who first began snowboarding when he was two years old and growing up in California. Ula said it was when his mother, Shamya Ula, took him on a trip to snowboard when he was around four years old that Ula truly fell in love with the sport. I loved it. So I started doing it more and more, Ula said. After discovering a passion for the sport at Mountain High Resort in Wrightwood, California, longtime snowboard coach Maya Girnett took Ula under her wing. Girnett, who is known for coaching snowboarders Chloe Kim and Maddie Mastro, coached Ula in the first few years of his career before Hirano's old coach Ben Boyd took over from 2015 to 2022. Gearnet and Boyd both ultimately helped transform Ula from an elementary level rider to an experienced rider that has started turning heads on the professional snowboard scene. It's not something that happens super fast, Ula said of his development into the rider he is today. I was on snow a lot, and it was definitely a lot of work that I had to put in. In many ways, the two 
2014 Winter Olympics in Sochi forever changed how Ula thought about the sport. Before I started competing, I was just riding for fun. But I watched the Olympics in 2014, and that was when I really said, I want to ride half pipe and do this as much as I can, Ula said. And that was the point where I decided this is what I wanted to do. From there, I started working my way up from small competitions and climbing up. With a firm dream behind him, Ula made the move to Summit County during the 2015-16 winter season. Moving out to Summit County. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777. Mm -hmm.